Yes, indeed, millions of people will curse God during the tribulation when he rains wrath down from heaven. But millions of people will also respond to that wrath and they'll get right with God. An untold number that John likens to the sand of the seashore. What are the marks of a decaying and depraved society? We don't have to look far to see these in our own country and in this day and age. The Apostle Paul noted many of these marks in his letter to the Romans. It's not unlikely, as he wrote from the city of Corinth, he was seeing these being played out in front of him. Unfortunately, civilizations seldom seem to learn from the past and too often repeat the sins and mistakes of previous generations. In our study from Romans, Dr. Carl Brogy, senior pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, Today continues his look at chapter 1, verses 23 to 32, and he notes that some of these marks included idolatry, immorality, and iniquity. Let's rejoin Dr. Brogy as he continues his message entitled, Anatomy of a Sinner. If you're taking notes, the very first expression of a life and a society that is sliding from God is what I'm calling this morning the delusion of idolatry. The delusion of idolatry. Look now at verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools. You see, that's the delusion of it. They think they're smart. They think they're intelligent. But God says, no, you're not wise at all. Because you've suppressed the truth, you've become a fool. And so he says in verse 23, as he expresses that foolishness, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. The Bible is expressing just one form of idolatry for us. And let me hasten to say that even this form of idolatry is not limited to the first century. Missiologists tell us that somewhere around two and a half billion people on the planet still express this form of idolatry. But understand, too, that idolatry is broadened in the epistles to go beyond worshiping a statue or a man. Jot down next to verse 23, if you would, Colossians 3 and verse 5. Colossians 3 and verse 5. Biblically speaking, an idol is anything you love more than God, anything you serve more than God, and anything that you fear more than God. And so Paul said to the church at Colossus, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Do you see what Paul is saying? He said people who love and serve their fleshly desires, specifically immorality, impurity, evil desire, and greed, are involved in a form of idolatry. And in God's economy, idolatry invites judgment. And so he says in the next verse, for it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Now, unlike animals, people are made in the image of God. And intrinsic within man is a desire to worship. Man is instinctively religious. Wherever you go in the world, you will find people worshiping. And if a person suppresses the truth that God has given in creation and conscience concerning the one true God, then they will worship a false God, one that they've created in their own mind. 
Now remember, Paul is writing to the Romans, and he's actually in the city of Corinth. If, as we learned in our first introductory message to this series, he's in the city of Corinth when he writes it. In both Rome and Corinth, the cities are covered over with all kinds of idolatry. People worshiping things, animals, men, etc. They would erect temples, houses of worship, and there they would erect a, flaw, a frog or a bird or some four-footed animal or man, and they would bow down and they would worship. You say, Pastor, how utterly pagan. We are so much more sophisticated than they. Are we? One of the gods that they worshipped in the city of Rome was called Mammon, the god of wealth and possessions, and that Greek word has come directly into our English language. You say, do we worship that God today? We may not call him Mammon, but the truth is, is that there are some people whose whole commitment and focus in life is the acquisition of more. It's what Paul just called in Colossians 3.5, greed. And it is the principal problem for the worldwide economic disaster that man is now facing. Nothing wrong with riches unless you love those riches more than God. And if you do, then you're serving the God of mammon, and that God will shape your character. You see, when a man chooses to suppress the truth that God has given him, then that truth is going to be replaced with something else. And whether it's a person who literally physically molds an idol or creates an idol in his own heart, he is going to begin to be molded by that idol. First the man molds the idol and then the idol molds the man. That's how it works. And so whatever you give your affections to, whatever you worship, you will become like. If you worship the Lord Jesus Christ and give your affections to him and seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, you will become more Christ-like in your character. Another so-called God they worshipped back in Rome was the god Bacchus. He was the god of wine, the god of drink. And since they loved to drink, they said, let's make a god and worship that god. And they erected a magnificent temple of whose uh, remains still are with us to this day. You say, do we have that God in America? We certainly do. Billions of dollars are spent just in advertising, much less the 20 billions in the possession of promoting this particular God. We even have temples. Some people do their drinking in their houses. Other people go to little places we call bars. They had another God in Athens. That God's name was Aphrodite or Venus. She was the goddess of sexual love and physical beauty. She was a sex goddess that stood for licentiousness and lust. And people would literally go into her temple as an act of worship with the temple prostitutes. They would engage in immorality. You say, Pastor, do we have that goddess in America today? The whole pornographic industry is built on that God. The public schools in America are enticing our children to give our allegiance to that God. And millions of Americans every night put their affections on movies they download, things they rent, programs they watch, things that they listen to that are based on this God. Then there's another goddess that was available in both Corinth and in the city of Rome. It was the goddess Sophia. It comes from the Greek word sophos. It comes into English as sophisticated. The Athenians worshipped the goddess of learning, which may seem honorable, 
unless that learning replaces true learning, true wisdom that comes from Jehovah God. And so when a man supplants the truth of God, he creates an idol. And many of our universities are committed to worshiping this goddess. We call it intellectualism. Their Bible is their science textbooks. Their, their salvation is the progress of man. And their, their heaven is the plastic utopia that they're trying to create. Now it seems the more that we talk about our wisdom in America, the more we are falling apart as a nation. We don't call her Sophia, but we think somehow that we are smarter than our founders were. That their ideas were puritanical, old-fashioned, and antiquated, and we need to come up to a day of intellectualism. And that's the kind of world that Jesus came into. He came like a bright light in the midst of darkness when the prophet describes his first coming, and he will come to the same kind of world when he comes again. And so we read in verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, of birds, four-footed animals, crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over to the lust of their hearts and purity so that their bodies might be dishonored among them. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And Paul says, Amen. Now, beyond the delusion of idolatry, I want you to see, beginning in verse 26, that God unfolds for us the distortion of immorality. The distortion of immorality. Notice how verse 26 begins. For this reason. For what reason? For the reason I just read and reread a second ago in verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Literally, the Greek text says, passions of dishonor. Some people have the idea that if we don't get right, that God is going to judge us. Friends, I want to tell you that sexual perversion is the judgment of God. When God takes his hand off of an individual, or when God takes his hand off of a nation, they become part of the judgment of God. Remember, Paul is not speaking of the wrath of God here that will be revealed, but the wrath of God that is being revealed. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. We call that lesbianism. And when people reject natural revelation, natural law, as the medieval theologians described it, Thomas Aquinas and others, then we are given over to unnatural sexual perversion. And in the same way, the men also abandoned the natural function of the women and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. We call that male homosexuality. And it's obvious as you look around America today that there's an increasing tolerance and an encouragement for this lifestyle. Forty years ago this behavior was illegal in all 50 states. Now we have written laws to condone it. And the homosexual community argues that their behavior is biologically appealing to them. That it comes just naturally to them. That that's the way they were made. That they're just going along with their natural desires. Well, they're right to some extent. 
It does come naturally out of your sinful fallen nature. And God calls that behavior unnatural. It's not part of his original design. And so he goes on. And, and let me just say parenthetically, God doesn't say in his word, listen, I'm speaking out of the heterosexual community. Lusting is natural. Fornication, premarital sex is natural. Extramarital sex is natural, so it's okay. He doesn't say, well, since coveting, the acquisition of things and the love of things is natural, I understand. Should a man be allowed to rape, commit pedophilia, commit bisexuality, behavior, be involved in bestiality, fornication, adultery, because it comes natural to him and he finds it biologically pleasing and alluring to him? Listen, if you don't get anything else out of this sermon, don't miss this. All sin comes naturally. Every one of us has a wicked, fallen, depraved nature. A person is no more born a homosexual than he's born a liar, a cheat, a murderer, adulterer, or anything else you can think of. He chooses to commit adultery. He chooses to rape. He chooses to ponder over pornographic material. He chooses to get drunk. But make no mistake how God describes this. In verse 26, he calls this a degrading passion. Again, literally a passion of dishonor. We have children's books in our own public library right here in our county that call this behavior natural. You better know what your kids are pulling off the shelf. It's true in books, all, libraries all across America today. In verse 27, he says, people who engage in this kind of behavior are committing indecent acts. And at the end of the same verse, he says, in their own persons, the due penalty of their error. There is a consequence that comes with this sin in their own persons. There's a tragic loss of identity such that a woman often will take on masculine characteristics and a man will take on feminine characteristics. A rejection of one's own masculinity or femininity, either outwardly or inwardly through the sexual activities they engage in, God calls due penalty for their sin. Now it's interesting in every culture historically and now in our culture homosexuality has always found a, a platform where people are sympathetic to that lifestyle when the heterosexual community is engaged in immorality. The more engaged the heterosexual community is in those things that God calls wrong the more there will be acceptance of this kind of sin or any other kind of sin. Now let me just say that there is no sin that is beyond the blood of Jesus Christ. And while homosexuality is a serious offense to God, you are not to heap some kind of special condemnation on these people. God is not opposed to homosexual people. He is opposed to homosexual behavior. And you are to show a relentless love to sinners, whoever they may be. But understand, and I know it's not politically correct... But people are calling this a genetic uh, predisposition or sometimes a, a genetic issue or, or a sickness. This is not a sickness. You may think it's sick. 
This is not some genetic predisposition. And let me just say, that's wonderful news because with some sicknesses, there are no cure. And with some genetic predispositions or problems, they can't be resolved. But all sin can be forgiven. What does Paul say? Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? And then the next three words, four words are so important. Do not be deceived. Whenever Paul says that, listen up, the Spirit of God is trying to get your attention. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, that's premarital sex, nor idolaters, we just define that specifically and broadly from the Scripture, nor adulterers, that's extramarital sex, nor effeminate, that's male prostitutes, nor homosexuals, that would include lesbianism, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Look at the next verse. In such were some of you. He did not say, in such are some of you. But such were some of you. What happened to them? You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the spirit of our God. There is no sin that cannot be forgiven and overcome. And I've led a number of homosexual people to Christ. And some who are married and functioning normally as God intends for them to know today. Now beyond the delusion of idolatry and the distortion of immorality. I want you to notice a third mark of a darkened heart in a decaying society and it's what I am calling the depravity of iniquity. The depravity of iniquity. We now come to this third frightful downward spiral into sin. Notice verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved the Greek word is adakimos, to a depraved mind, to do those things which are not proper. I have it underlined in my text three times in verses 24, 26, and 28. God gave them over. Why? Because this is not the wrath to come. This is the wrath that is here presently, the wrath that is revealed. God gave them over to a depraved mind. That's a judgment of God. Now, more than once in the Bible line, people have asked me, Pastor, what is a depraved mind? Or the old English says a reprobate mind. Well, when you say the word depraved, same word, in other places in the Bible, it gives us some insight. For instance, in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 8, Paul says, Just as Jonas and James opposed Moses, so these men that Timothy was dealing with also opposed the truth. Men of depraved, adakimos. Men of depraved mind rejected in regard to the faith. Same word she used in Titus 1.16. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and depraved or worthless. Same word for any good deed. So the word translated useless, depraved, reprobate, comes actually from another Greek word, dokimos. Dokimos is a word that's used in the Old Testament and the New Testament that describes something that was tested and then passed the test. Remember the Greek translation of the Old Testament that most of the Jews read in Jesus' day that is habitually quoted primarily in the New Testament. Uh, it's used of metals. 
that were tested and found pure. And so we studied in the book of Genesis, Abraham with silver of commercial grade, dokimos. It was pure metal. It was tested and found to pass the test. It's also used of men who were tested and found worthy. But in Greek, like in English, when you put the word A in front of a word, or in Greek alpha, it typically means just the opposite. And so a millennialist believes that there is a literal thousand-year reign of Christ upon the earth. The amillennialist believes just the opposite. And so the word A is put in front of it. Uh, there's actually a play on words here in this verse. It reads like this. They retrovated the knowledge of God... So God gave them over to a retrobate mind. Or you could say they, they cast out the knowledge of God, so God gave them a cast out mind. A mind that considers God worthless, God considers worthless. And if you abandon the knowledge of God long enough that he has given you, he lets you go your own way. He lets you go in the way of your own fallen wicked nature. Now God alone knows those who have been given over to a depraved mind. But let me say that the wrath of God that is revealed, much like the wrath of God that is going to be revealed during the tribulation, not to be confused with the ultimate coming eternal wrath in the lake of fire, God will often use to bring repentance. Yes, indeed, millions of people will curse God during the tribulation when he rains wrath down from heaven. But millions of people will also respond to that wrath and they'll get right with God. An untold number that John likens to the sand of the seashore. And God will often bring a person to the point where they are so sick of themselves, so sick of the consequences of their sin, that they come to repentance. So beginning now in verse 29, God catalogs 21 vices for us. Let's go through the list carefully. In verse 29, he begins with four general sins. Being filled with all unrighteousness. When a person is full of unrighteousness, he will despise the things that God loves and he will love the things that God despises. It's a word used throughout the New Testament that describes any kind of wrong thinking, speaking, acting, or living. It's the very opposite of those things that are related to God's will and to God's character. Being filled, he says, with all unrighteousness, and then he adds wickedness. When a person is filled with wickedness, he delights in doing what's wrong. In addition, he says they are being filled with greed. The ESV, the King James says covetousness. It's literally the craving to have more and more. It's the opposite of contentment. A person who's content is satisfied with what God has given them. A person who's greedy, who's covetousness, always wants more. Then he says they are filled with evil. It's the word kakia. It's a word that's used to describe someone with a viciousness who wants to harm another individual. Then comes five additional words. And Paul, again, is describing this current expression of God's wrath. Full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. The word envy is a word used in the Bible that uh, lusts after what another person has. There's a difference between envy and greed. Greed is craving what you do not have. Envy is craving what another person has. We saw an expression of it last week on Easter. I read to you from Matthew 27. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy, same word, they had handed him over. The religious leaders wanted Jesus to die because he had power and they wanted it. 
Jesus had popularity and the attention of the people, and they didn't. So they wanted him dead because they envied him. Paul says those who are of a depraved mind are also full of murder. And murder follows envy, not just on the list, but in life itself. It's the removal of a person that causes you misery whom you cannot stand. They're also, note, full of strife. The Old English says debate, but while that was an excellent translation for the 17th century, it's a little misleading in the 21st century because in our day it doesn't carry the, the hatred and the bitterness that's associated with the original word, and so strife is better. These are people who have an affection for arguing. They're always picking a fight. Why? Because they have this quarrelsome disposition. Notice too, they are full of deceit. The original word literally means fish bait. That is, they, they, they bait people into sin. They use sinful bait. And then there is a, a, finally in this short list of five, he says, full of malice. This is a compound word in the original. The word kakos, bad or evil. It reminded me this week, I was sitting in a church some years ago and a, a pastor commented on the choir that morning. He said, that was a marvelous cacophony of music. Well, the word cacophony that comes into English from this word kakos means bad, a bad sound. Now, I don't know if he had a hidden agenda or he just didn't know what the word meant, but in either case, uh, the, the second word, ethos, speaks of a habit or a character. So he's describing people who do badness as a habit, as a way of life. He's not done yet. He then goes to two sins of the tongue. They are gossips. And then he adds slanderers. Uh, this is similar to malice, but it's different. A malicious person uses his hands to hurt. A gossip uses his tongue to hurt. Please note, he doesn't say they gossip, Christians gossip, but the verb to be is implied. They are gossips. He's describing their character, their person. And the Greek word gossip sounds like it is. If you remember in high school English, you had a, a, a word called onomatopoeia. Say it, onomatopoeia. It's kind of a neat word, isn't it? Onomatopoeia. Remember what that was? It's an English word that means like it sounds. Like the word sizzle or hiccup or animal sounds like bark or moo or, or quack. Well, this word for, for gop is, gossip is psusthes. I didn't say it real well, but psusthes. And we kind of, in the King James, translates it whisperer. We say psst. I'll tell you something. Gossip. Getting ready to tell you something very often. And by the way, if you want to fend that off, just say before they tell you, can I quote you on that? <laughs> can I quote you on this? Then he adds slanderers. This is an individual who wants to ruin people publicly. Gossip is more secret defamation, where slander is more of a public defamation. That's why the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 5, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. There are people who will slander you, but they will especially slander the man of God. Why? Because they want to destroy that person's character. The two sins of a reprobate, gossip and slander, are followed by four sins of extreme pride. And we will look at these tomorrow when we conclude our message entitled, Anatomy of a Sinner. To listen to this or any of Dr. Brogy's messages, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, 
or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program ROM5. At Search the Scriptures, we are committed to sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with unbelievers and to growing believers in their relationship with the Savior. If you can help us with this mission, won't you call or visit online and give a one-time or recurring gift? Our phone number again is 877-787-7478 and our website is searchthescriptures.org. Tomorrow we've reached the end of Chapter 1 in our study of the Book of Romans. Join us then as we search the scriptures.